Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here with me. Today, I am talking with Dr. Marissa Barrera, the Assistant Dean of Health Sciences and Director of the Graduate Program in Speech-Language Pathology at the Katz School of Science and Health at Yeshiva University in New York City. She is an internationally recognized medical speech-language pathologist, multiple sclerosis certified specialist, and a leading expert on the use of modalities for speech and swallowing rehabilitation. On today's episode, we talk about cognition, speech, and swallowing symptoms in multiple sclerosis, and how to advocate for the care that will set you up for success down the road. The big question is, how does someone with MS actually improve their mobility, strength, energy, independence, the list goes on. My name is Dr. Gretchen Hawley, physical therapist and multiple sclerosis specialist. Welcome to the Missing Link Podcast. Tune in as I share the top strategies and exercises to help you gain control over your life with MS using research-driven insights and advice from top industry experts. Whether you're newly diagnosed or have had MS for over 30 years, whether you have relapsing MS or progressive MS, this podcast is for you. You're sure to feel empowered and inspired after each episode. Ready? Let's dive in. Dr. Barrera, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have this opportunity to talk with all of your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I think speech and language pathology is something that a lot of people aren't aware of, especially in the MS world. We're not really aware of it until symptoms arise. And there's a lot of things that, that you can do, and we'll be talking about a bunch of them to advocate for yourself when you do have symptoms. But even it's just good to know what can exist before they do so that you can take some preventative action as well. Absolutely. So before we get into all that, I'm going to ask you a question from my interview deck. Sounds fantastic. Let's do it. Yeah, they're so fun. Nice little icebreaker. Let everyone get to know you beyond your specialty in MS. Sounds great. Okay. Your question is, whom do you secretly envy? Ooh, this is a really good question. Whom do I secretly envy? Fitness instructors. (laughs) I am a former dancer. Growing up, I was a competitive dancer. I was a four, I'm former dancer. I still love to dance now. And I secretly envy fitness instructors and dance instructors who get to bring dance and movement and musicality to the masses every day. So I envy a little bit of their life. I love what I do. I think today, all of your listeners will see I have a real innate passion for health sciences, medicine, multiple sclerosis, but down deep within my soul, I'm just a dancer and I love and dream and I'm envious of those who get to be dance instructors and dancers professionally. So that's a great question. Love that. And there I love you have it, everyone. You can probably find some old YouTube videos of Dr. B dancing. <laughs> Don't search too hard. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. I remember yeah. I was in dance classes, as I think most kids probably are, up until maybe sixth grade. And I really liked it. But then I switched over to soccer and other sports. But I always 
think it's the energy that dancers have and that you can just feel the energy from them. I thought that was really cool. Absolutely. I actually applied to college as a dance major with a double major in speech pathology and dance. And ultimately they said to me, we think you're a little too smart to be a dance (laughs) major exclusively. So anyway, fast forward, I'm very happy with my choice, but dancing is still my passion. And if I have a little spare time, you would definitely see me out there dancing uh, and teaching dance across all different levels of uh, capability. So that's a great, great question. Yeah, that's an amazing answer. So before we get into the questions, why don't you give us your background, just in case people don't know who you are, who are you, what do you specialize in, and how did you get to where you are today? I actually love this question because I think it's great because it really showcases women in science and women just forging ahead in in healthcare. So back, I grew up in Long Island, born in Brooklyn, raised in Long Island. And my mom went to PA school later in life. And I was so intrigued by all that she was doing. And ultimately she was a, and is a retired infectious disease physician assistant. And I saw how the wonderful patient care she had. And it really had me thinking perhaps I was going to go to medical school or follow in her footsteps. So I was very much on the straight and narrow for health sciences. But then (laughs) in the late 1990s, not to age myself, there was a very profound documentary called The Sound and Fury about deafness. And it was about the early cochlear implants. And it came from Long Island and the hospitals here in New York. And I discovered the field of medical speech pathology and audiology. And I fell in love because I got to be a clinician. I could be a doctor uh, as I pursued my PhD, but I got to work with my patients many times per week and in intensive intervals and really could see the catalyst of change. So that's how I went from just thinking I was going to be maybe ENT or neurology in the footsteps of my mom, a PA, but ultimately went in the route of medical speech pathology with a doctor. And that's how I came to be a speech language pathologist. I fell in love with MS specifically for speech language pathology because I get to use every skill on my clinical tool belt. And we're going to talk about that today, but whether it's cognition, swallowing, position, positioning, counseling, All of these different facets that we see for our patients with MS, I get to use my clinical training. So I get to be a jack of all trades within this larger clinical population. And that's really exciting to me. Yeah, I love that. That's one of my favorite things about being a therapist as well is that we get to see them so frequently. Because as you mentioned, doctors, usually it's once or twice a year. So being able to work with them multiple times a week is really special. It is. So can you share a bit about speech and language pathology specifically for multiple sclerosis. So if you have MS, what are some speech and language symptoms that might be possible for you? And is that something that we should be taking preventative action on or more so just wait and see what happens? Sure. So when I think about how I approach multiple sclerosis as a multiple sclerosis certified specialist, so we talked about me having my doctorate in neurolinguistics, specifically on multiple sclerosis, but also something we can seek out to further specialize ourselves in our clinical care is earning our multiple sclerosis certified specialist. So I'm an MSCS medical speech language pathologist with a PhD in neuroscience looking at MS. So that's the background. Now, taking that specialized training, I have a very specific vision and kind of classification for how we describe and classify and quantify changes with multiple sclerosis. And I really look at it from three big areas. First and foremost, 
we see cognition. We always talk about cognition. And what's great about the discussions on cognition is that it's interdisciplinary in nature. There's neuropsychologists who work with cognition. Of course, our physical therapy colleagues are always helping work through cognition for understanding multiple step instructions and how to simplify things to ensure that they have the exercise and the regimens that they need. OT is working to actively treat cognition, and so is medical speech pathology. So cognition is one of the first kind of major signs and symptoms that we encounter and that we also like to target through therapeutic intervention. And it happens anywhere between about 30 to 40% of patients with MS through formal testing methods. So through formal neuropsychology or advanced diagnostic testing. And persons like myself also provide those types of testing. But we actually see the numbers are much more closer to 60% at that significance level when we're looking at higher levels of EDSS. And then cognition is important because changes in cognition impact employment, longevity in the workplace, community engagement, so many things. So cognition is like the first of the trifecta. The second is speech and voice. This is when our patients often report to any one of us in the healthcare world, I don't feel like I'm being understood as well. Sometimes I run out of air when communicating. I sometimes feel like my tongue is heavy or when I articulate what I'm trying to say doesn't necessarily match. Changes in voice and articulation specifically, what we call the medical world dysarthria, occur in about 70% of all persons with multiple sclerosis. So this is the highest of the prevalences that we see in terms of clinical practice when working with our patients with MS. And we can talk about that a little bit more, but really profound impact on speech clarity and voice and volume and being understood in all communication contexts. So high, high, high importance. And the last is like my passion project. You'll never see me give an interview and not talking about the importance of dysphagia or difficulty swallowing. So dysphagia in a just actually a pretty recent meta-analysis showed us that there's a prevalence just in general of about 43%. And dysphagia means difficulty safely moving food from one's lips down to their stomach. And it's something that we all do anywhere between 1,000 and 1,200 times per day, pretty unconsciously, so without a lot of thought or a lot of conviction behind it, until there's a disruption in the neuromuscular system. Then when that system goes slightly awry, we see that there's a lot of dangers surrounding dysphagia weight loss, changes in appetite, the ability to metabolize medicines, take the right medicines. Of course, pneumonia can develop. There's just so many things and we can take a deep dive into that. If we had to kind of summarize it, put a bow in a box around it, cognition, speech slash voice, and of course, swallowing dysfunction. Yeah. And those are so important because so many, if not all of those can significantly impact your confidence and if you isolate yourself more than usual, if you're not feeling as confident, so feeling like you have control over these areas, your cognition, speech, articulation, swallowing is so, so, so important. And I know with speech and articulation and swallowing, a lot of it is muscular, which is similar in physical therapy. We're just working on different muscles. But when it comes to cognition, what is it that causes some of those cognitive changes? Well, that's a great question. Cognition is incredibly multifaceted. Uh, you're right. For speech and swallowing, we see changes in muscles, changes in nerve, nerves, timing. It's very mechanical in nature. But just to talk on this topic briefly, with cognition, we have a few things. The actual brain is changing. So the anatomy of the 
brain is changing, the way that the electrical currents are changing, because we know that MS is a disorder of demyelination. So the anatomy of the brain changes. And with that, we see the development of lesion loads, and these lesion loads can impact quote unquote, normal cognition. But on top of just the anatomical differences observed in an MS brain, cognition is also due to changes in our ability to receive and to restore information. For example, when we have high amounts of fatigue, right? Fatigue and MS go hand in hand. This is the number one still reported symptom associated with MS and all of its disease subtypes, right? So when one is feeling fatigued, they often have less capability to take in information, process information, perhaps even store that information to use it later. So we see that fatigue can influence the development and the the storing and the retrieval of information, right? We see that distractibility can impact cognition. We know that MS can impact our ability to multitask or to shift, to have divided attention. So there's a lot of small nuances in cognition, executive function and short-term memory, long-term memory, distractibility. All of these factors play in the receiving of information, ultimately the encoding of information, the retrieving of information, and good old multitasking, which takes high cognitive demand. And somebody with multiple sclerosis or in general with acquired neurological conditions, their brains just operate differently and those tasks can become more challenging. It's interesting how fatigue can play such a big role on some of these symptoms too, because therefore the main treatment may actually be more for fatigue, but you would also notice benefits in cognition. So I love that you asked this. So not to go back to like research necessarily, but my own dissertation, my doctorate, which was under the work of Dr. Herb Kropakin and Dr. Evan Cohen, who are profound MS clinicians and physical therapists. My PhD in speech language hearing sciences was very much looking at how physical fatigue impacted persons with MS, their ability to retrieve words like tip of the tongue. Because despite being a speech pathologist, my personal approach to rehabilitation is very much a very PT or rehabilitation medicine approach. And we can talk about that shortly. So coming together, the three of us, two PTs and a medical SOP, we were able to come up with a really profound way at looking at fatigue. And we saw in my dissertation and in my research that persons under high levels of fatigue, physically induced fatigue, had greater challenges in coming up with what they wanted to say, the precision in which they said it, and the complexity of language that they used. So fatigue is really impactful in not just having the endurance to get up and take care of yourself and your loved ones and to work and engage in activities of daily living. But if you're under instances of high fatigue, it could also show that it may be more challenging for you to say what you have to say, what you need to say, what you deserve to say, to have your wishes, your thoughts, and your ideas acknowledged. So fatigue is profound. Yeah, I can believe that. I do not have MS, but I even noticed that. There's a few times per month that I give nighttime-based webinars around 7 p.m. And if I've had a really busy day or just a mentally taxing day, there's so many times where I feel like I can't can't remember the word that I'm looking for. And I just end up saying something else instead. And so even without MS, it happens. I cannot even imagine how much more intense it is for those who do have MS because we all know that fatigue is just on a different level. And we also know that not for all patients, but there is a little bit of a 
uniqueness where patients who have certain lesion loads may be more vulnerable to this tip of the tongue phenomenon, which we call in the neurolinguistic world, anomio, difficulty with word retrieval. This term can be used anywhere from you know, us, we all have moments of anomia. Like tonight, for example, I will lecture until nine o'clock tonight teaching by 10 minutes to nine. You'll see that, you know, I'm starting to tuck out. We all have normal instances of tip of the tongue or having that word retrieval, but we also see it very much in our patients with MS. Naturally, you add fatigue on top of that. Let's add heat <laughs> on top of that, right? Some of our other MS symptoms that we often encounter and then natural stress and it just snowballs. Um, so in Anomia is a very real thing observed in MS and across a bunch of neurodegenerative diseases and us as good old human beings living our day-to-day lives. Yeah, absolutely. And so it sounds like in order to work on cognition and maybe even speech and swallowing limitations, step one might be understanding why is it happening? Is it from the fatigue or heat intolerance, cold intolerance, spasticity? And if so, maybe manage that. But as a speech and language pathologist who has the MSCS certification, Mm -hmm. what are some strategies that you would use to treat someone who has these symptoms? So absolutely. Before we talk about strategy, I think it's important, and you bring up a great topic here, is about having a great evaluation and connecting yourselves with people who are knowledgeable of whatever disorder or disease or ailment you may have, right? So I think step one for great evidence-based treatment is having a really great comprehensive evaluation. And I've been very fortunate to um, serve on the faculty for the consortiums for multiple sclerosis centers for well over a decade. And uh, there's a group of us in the rehab track that frequently give roundtable discussions on the importance of interdisciplinary evaluation. Early evaluation, meaning early in the disease course, and consistently and periodically throughout the disease course. Even if you don't necessarily see a symptom, it's better for us to evaluate, to track data over time, should there be a change. And this allows us to ultimately develop really specific and personalized treatment plans because personalized medicine is everything. Before we talk treatment, I think evaluation. Always look for somebody who has multiple sclerosis certified specialty MSCS behind them. That might not be possible. That doesn't mean there's not great rehab medicine out there outside of that. Not every provider has the opportunity to go through the credentialing and the training to earn that, but there's still great people out there. So work with your local chapter of the National MS Society or MSF and your neurologists and other rehab professionals to link you to people who are aware of MS and its many subtleties, (laughs) the many faces of MS, first and foremost. That evaluation, if you're only seeking speech pathology, that within itself is not enough. Speech issues are confounded by occupational therapy issues and confounded by physical therapy issues. You come to me seeking low voice and dysarthria and some difficulties with swallowing. That is very much going to be postural in nature. Are they kyphotic? Do they have reduced force vital lung capacity? What's happening with their SEM muscles? Yes, I can treat that, but I treat it better when I'm working with the physical therapist. So I think that's really important. Once we work as a team to evaluate, I literally say head to toes, right? Then I'll come in as a medical speech pathologist and mostly focus on belly button to brain. And we'll come and we will evaluate further. Look at those three domains I mentioned, cognition, speech slash voice or dysarthria and dysphonia and swallowing and 
within that world, we will systematically use different types of formal assessment to quantify and qualify those changes that are seen. And once we have objective data, we can then develop personalized goals that allow us to target the things that are important in your life. So this the process is not very linear. It's up, down, stop, let's move around, let's take a step back. Who do we need to talk to? Who else do we need to consult with in our rehab world? But ultimately, the end game is a completely personalized, evidence-based medicine treatment plan, prioritizing the things that are critical right now. So let me give an example. We have a patient recently through my practice here in New York City that really wanted to focus on their vocal volume for reading. This is a working professor living her best life with multiple sclerosis. And that's a great goal. We want them to be understood, to be heard by her students, by her family members, her loved ones. Great goal. But what's of the highest priority from a medical management is that this young woman was coughing and choking on a lot of her liquids and had recently been hospitalized for aspiration pneumonia, which can be deadly. Aspiration pneumonia is when food or liquid, saliva, or anything that doesn't belong in one's lungs gets into your airway and causes a pneumonia. So it's an acquired pneumonia. And it's very common, about 40% patients with MS develop aspiration pneumonia. So even though we were working on voice and speech, we also had to personalize her treatment plan to prioritize her life because pneumonia is something that's very serious. So I love this approach because we can do what you want to do and work on your life goals, but simultaneously prioritizing your overall health and being and holistically looking at the whole medical picture. And that's how we get from A to Z, if you will, from evaluation to personalized medicine and speech pathology. Yeah. And I imagine there's got to be a little bit, at least, of overlap too, where some of the exercises that will help with breathing and avoiding aspirating again might also help with volume and articulation. Is that true? Absolutely. Yes, it's very much true. So there's a science called respiratory muscle strength training. And this is a science that's not exclusive to speech pathology or physical therapist. This is actually one of the world where PT and med SLP work together beautifully in tandem. And a few years ago, I gave a discussion at this at CMSE with a physical therapist on this very discussion. So respiratory muscle strength training is the use of very purposeful exercise to strengthen not only the muscles that we see in our anterior neck, our SCMs and other muscles related to that, but also through our intercostals and our diaphragm and other related muscles that we use very meaningfully and purposely all day long just for normal respiration, uh, vegetative, as well as for communication and for swallowing. And within that larger category of respiratory muscle strength training, we have expiratory, which is the blowing out. The, and this is very important because this is how we clear our airway. God forbid food, liquid, or anything foreign would enter our airway and we began to choke. One's ability to build up air pressure in their lungs subglottically, so underneath those vocal cords, is a huge predictor of clearing something forcefully in the event of acute medical emergency, like you're choking. So there is a lot of duality. Not only are we improving vocal volume on expiration and we're improving 
vocal endurance and articulation when we have more volume, better muscle strength, better coordination between breathing and articulation. We also know that improved expiratory muscle strength training, in particular EMSD, helps reduce the likelihood of aspiration pneumonia. It can reduce the likelihood of just developing pneumonia in general. And we can also see that it can prevent ultimately just demise or death through a choking incident because we're improving the ability to create subglottic air pressure and acutely clear the airway. Wow. I'm, this is reminding me, I'm having flashbacks of physical therapy school. And there was one class and one specific lecture where we were trying out a bunch of different products for breathing. And yes. some of them created resistance when you exhaled, others created resistance when you inhaled. Correct. And some do both. Yep. Some yeah. use different size, literally airports, small different holes. Imagine blowing through like a McDonald's milkshake straw. Those are the biggest straws out on the market, if anyone's ever inquiring, right? We talk a lot about straws in the medical SOP world. Very easy, very big, not a lot of force. But then imagine trying to blow through a coffee stirrer and how teeny tiny that is and how much more force it would take. So we can see these devices that you're mentioning operate under airports, different size holes, big to small, creating different forms of resistance for our patients. And then the other type of device that you likely encountered were ones that used springs. These are spring-loaded devices. And we physically would crank them different directions, clockwise or counterclockwise, to create a resistance to the force, a resistant load to impact the muscles for speech and swallowing and respiration for, once again, for life, not just in speech pathology. So that is an excellent PT school that you went to because it's not often... (laughs) on the docket in PT education. So I'm thrilled to hear that. As a dean of health sciences, I'm thrilled to hear that. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad. And you mentioned too, and this is something I wholeheartedly agree with, is that it's best to get an evaluation as early as possible before you even have symptoms, because then at the very least, we have baseline information on all three categories. And if symptoms were to arise, we now can compare. Do you find that this is typically something that people need to advocate for? Or is it something that their neurologists are saying, okay, I'm going to write you a referral to go see an SLP? How does that typically work? So I will say that in the perfect world, our patients should be referred to rehabilitation medicine immediately upon diagnosis. And this often doesn't happen for a few reasons. And this is, once again, interestingly enough, the topic of discussion that we hope to be presenting this year in Nashville at CMSC, the interdisciplinary team that I'm a part of in in the rehab world. Early evaluation is everything, but there are barriers to early early intervention or early evaluation, I think is even the more appropriate word. One is that somebody who's newly diagnosed genuinely and truly might not have the mind space to take this on. And we are beyond respectful of that. But creating a little bit of mind space and having our neurology, our physician assistant, family nurse practitioner, colleagues, those that are providing more of the primary medical care, letting them know how important it is to seek Simply just an evaluation early on is critical because as you just said, when we have early data, even if rehabilitation isn't necessary, fine, that's great. We love a patient who comes in and we can collect data. 
and we, they don't necessarily need our intervention services. We're not offended by that. We love that. But ultimately, if something happens three years down the road, four years down the road, or God forbid, even sooner or later, we have baseline data to measure change. And I can tell you that in almost 18 years of MS clinical practice, so many times patients have come to me or attorneys have come to me and say, hey, Dr. Barrera, do you have the reports from X, Y, and Z? So-and-so is applying for disability or so-and-so is seeking accommodations at their job. And I have the data and we can do a re-evaluation or I can show evaluation over time and advocate and really, really, really give good data-driven outcomes, not just those kind of shooting from the hip using my own personal expertise or opinion, but we're talking data-driven science. And this is so important. And you can't do that if you don't periodically check in the world of rehabilitation medicine. I would 100% agree with advocacy. And you may have to advocate for yourself because once again, your primary medical team very much may be focused on disease management, fatigue management, providing the necessary support services emotionally, perhaps financial changes. And that's incredibly necessary, but so is being able to document change over time that ultimately may make your life easier when it comes to accommodations, disability, receiving financial aid or government assistance. That's not going to come from neurology. That's going to come from your rehab team. When you can't ambulate X, Y, and Z, when you can't focus for X, Y, and Z, when you can't be heard on a telephone and you, you know, and you're an attorney and you can't litigate. These are real scenarios that come to rehabilitation medicine, SLP, OT, and PT. And we need you to see us so we can help you navigate those changes. And there's one other thing along those lines. You talked about early intervention. And I want to talk about this topic of benign MS. It's a hot topic. And I was really fortunate uh, earlier this year to publish an article with my colleagues in the Journal of Multiple Sclerosis and Related Disorders, first authored by Hans Bogart and Daniel Golan, myself, and a larger international MS research team under the advice of Mark Gooseblatt. And in this article, we really talked about, is benign MS even a thing? Is there such a thing as benign MS? So what is benign MS? These are our patients that are getting an EDSS score of less than three, saying they have MS, but there really is no impact. And we did a huge study looking at 141 people who, quote unquote, had benign MS. And we did a series of cognitive interventions and looked at cognitive impairment, fatigue, and depression. And guess what? 40% of people with benign MS had measurable, diagnosable cognitive impairment. 78% physical fatigue and cognitive fatigue. And about 55% of them had diagnoses of depression. I bring up this topic of when we often hear that someone has a low EDSS score, and you may have one, your doctors and your nurses and your PAs are probably not thinking the need for rehabilitation medicine. But we are telling you scientifically in this peer review research that people even with very low EDSS have impact, measurable, sustainable, quantifiable impacts, minimally in the areas of cognition, fatigue, and depression. And any one of those things are very serious and need to have caring intervention provided, let alone the trifecta of them. So is benign MS really a thing in the world of us and our research team, which is about 20 of us from all over the world? We're saying no. We're saying advocate. Don't let your EDSS score impact or make a decision on how you seek care and for you to really step up 
and be the consumer of medicine and not wait to have it spoon fed to you. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I do think this is getting better over the last few years, but I became an MS specialist through the CMSC about eight years ago. And back then I was educating neurologists on early physical therapy for their clients with MS. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it was equal education for neurologists as it was for the patient, because then the patient would come to me and they would say, I don't know why I'm here. I'm only here because my neurologist told me to be, but I'm fine. And so I think this conversation that we're having about why it's important, even if you are fine, even if you are not affected, whether it's your walking or strength or voice or cognition, even if you don't feel the effects right now, and hopefully you never do, but it's at least important to get that documented in case something does change. It's that much better and easier for treatment, a treatment active treatment plan to come into play. Out of doubt, you've hit the nail on the head, 100%. Yeah. So I guess my final question for you would be where can people go if they want to work with you, but also if they're looking for an MS specialized speech and language pathologist. And I guess part of that question is, can they be out of state? Because I know for physical therapy, you have to be in the same state as the patient, but can they do telehealth with someone out of state? Sure. So I'm going to speak to this as the rules pertain right now. Obviously, this is an ever-changing topic. So to work with me or any one of the many amazing clinicians uh, at my practice, which is New York Neurogenic Speech Language Pathology, physically located in New York, but we've been providing telehealth for well over a decade. And we are recognized MS um, partner in care. So we are an MS specialty practice for a very long time. Uh, You're welcome to Google my name, Dr. Marissa Barrera, or check out uh, www.nyneuroslp.com. But most importantly, just connecting with your local MS resource team. The MS Navigator system is wonderful. They have a, a vetted group of individuals across all different disciplines, whether of course it's neurogenic bowel and bladder, speech pathology, physical therapy, psychology, social work, ophthalmology, whatever you may need. They have a, a team of resources that can be pinpointed to your area. So I always say go to the MS Navigator first, just because this is truly what they do in and out. And they're constantly vetting and updating their resources. If there's something not available through that, of course, equally MSF, Multiple Sclerosis Foundation, has a wide variety of resources that are equally wonderful. So I want to just put both of those organizations up in the forefront because they are just tremendous uh, players in the MS world. Outside of that, then I think it's really important to go to your neurologist and say, who do you refer to? Who do you refer to who understands my disease? And this might just not be MS. Although MS is 99.9% of what I do, it would behoove me to not mention there's patients with Parkinson's disease and ALS and traumatic brain injury and stroke, all that kind of fall within our realms of neurospecialists in PT, OT, and SLP. People who understand these acquired neurological conditions have a different philosophy. Once again, I keep saying this term EBP, but we're really rooted in individualized evidence-based practice intervention in medicine. And your neurologist or your PA or family nurse practitioner who's treating you, they can help give you meaningful referrals. And outside of that, once again, you are a consumer. 
you have the right to advocate for what you want. If your doctor doesn't think you need to have a swallowing assessment or you don't need to see a physical therapist because you're quote unquote still walking fine and you're not hugging the wall and you can do a get up and go, but you feel like your endurance has changed. You feel like your strength has changed. You feel like you're small, like it's taking you 45 minutes to eat breakfast and that doesn't sit well with you. You have to say, I am requesting a referral. I am noticing changes. I am a consumer. I need you to give me a resource. And don't say no, because it's a two-way street. <laughs> we cannot be passive receivers of healthcare. We have to be respectful advocates for our own pe- personal re- rehab and, and care in general, no matter what that disorder is. So I think that's really meaningful. And worst case scenario, I would start by calling a hospital who works with patients with stroke, Parkinson's, MS, things of that nature, and just get a call into the rehab director. Maybe they don't have an entire department, but they have one or two men or women or individuals who have a fair amount of MS expertise under their belt. That would be a great place for you to start. And if they don't feel like they're the best person, they may also know so somebody. So picking up the phone, making a few phone calls, throwing out a few emails, don't necessarily settling on the first evaluation. That's okay. Because great medicine sometimes takes a little bit of a little bit of digging and it's often very much worth the wait. So those are some tips for advocacy and how to find the right people when you're faced with limited resources. I love that. And I love that it starts just with a simple call or a simple Google search to the MS navigator. It doesn't have to be this huge thing if we just break it down individually of just what do I do first? And that person might be able to help you with the next step so that you're not doing all of this on your own. I can't tell you how many times per week I receive emails at, at my practice looking for a very specific type of personalized care. And I will say, can I do this? Yes. But I can tell you who does it even better than me. Perhaps it's something related to pediatrics or something that is not in my current really wheelhouse. I have no shame and no one should ever feel shame in saying, can I do this? Yes. Am I willing and will I help you? Absolutely. However, just call my colleague because they may just have one or two additional resources outside of me. And perhaps we can even work together as a team. I always say this, teamwork is the dream work and we're only as strong as our weakest link, right? So we have to work collaboratively across all of interdisciplinary medicine to have the absolute best delivery of MS care. Absolutely. This has been so insightful. I feel like we went all the way from cognition and speech, articulation styling, and how to advocate for you to get those services and then how to find them. So this has just been a really amazing discussion that I hope has opened people's eyes to this world. Because as I mentioned in the beginning, I think a lot of people don't even know that what SLPs are or how they work on your healthcare team, when to get one. So thank you for all of your expertise that you've shared. And I will put all of the links that you mentioned in the show notes as well. And you know what? And it's so important to to let everyone know that there are a lot of young clinicians right now being trained on the delivery of MS. There is a huge need for more MS CS or just more MS knowledgeable clinicians. And as I mentioned earlier, I serve as the Dean of Health Sciences at Yeshiva University at the CAT School. And we put a tremendous amount of effort in making sure our PA students, our nursing students, our OT students, our med SLP students all have foundational knowledge. And we're not the only university. So for those of you who have MS, 
myself and my colleagues all over the country are very passionate about making sure that great MS care won't stop when I retire in 20 years, but we are forging strong interdisciplinary relationships on the delivery of MS care at the graduate level. And um, great things are happening in MS care. And we're proud to be a part of the new generation and the continuing generation. So thank you so much for allowing me to share my passion for MS today. Of course. And I love that you are raising the next generation to fill in those footsteps. I feel like that's... A few hundred every year. (laughs) Yeah, that's gotta be the next step because it needs to continue moving forward. It does. So thank you again Uh, for this opportunity and everyone reach out and let me know how I can be an assistance in your care. Thank you for listening to today's show. I am so grateful to have you as a listener. If you'd like extra resources, such as a video of one of my seated exercise classes, my favorite core exercises, and the opportunity to ask me your questions, head to missinglink.com forward slash insider. That link will be shared in the show notes along with links to my social media handles. If you loved this episode and think a friend or family member with MS would benefit from listening, please go ahead and text or email this podcast to them right now. Sharing this podcast will help me educate and empower as many MS warriors as possible. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Missing Link Podcast.